So last Sunday, it was kind of a hard message, and then we got down and went to lunch, and we had a very hard lunch, which reminded me of how difficult parenting is. It was almost like the Lord was laughing at us. Uh, So I just want to say, in a parenting series, I said these things up front, but I want to say them again. Parenting can be hard sometimes, and it can get harder, and... It's my hope in this series that you look to the principle and not the prescription. Um, some are, you know, it's, we're prone to want to grab the prescription, but we're trying to preach to biblical principles. And I think those you can take into your home. And, and you're the professional in your home. You know, you know how to best care in your home. And so um, please take the principle. Uh, you know, and you have your kids and I have my kids. And I'll even say within our children... You know how it is. Children are so different. They're not opposites. They're just so different that in order to raise them towards the Lord, you behave very differently towards them. We had some that we've spanked many, many times, and we have others that you almost have never had to spank because you can get to the same goal in a different way. So I just, even in your home, it needs to be a principle and not a prescription. So there we go. Okay. Well, we're in a, a, a sermon this morning. It's probably the most uh, abstract message in this series. And it's on an idea that is uh, very important but is silent. It doesn't fight for itself in the life of the family. You know, there are things in life that are very quiet and very important. And they're not going to speak up for themselves. They don't have a lot of lights, a lot of noise. Um, and so they can go ignored or neglected, but they're every bit as important as, as the things that, that have um, all of the attention. I'll give you an example from, from my old life in flying. There are a lot of things that are important when you're flying, but there's two that are important that don't really speak up for themselves. That's your fuel, and that's your altitude. Those are very quiet participants in the flight. Many people have run themselves out of gas or run themselves out of altitude because nothing was giving them feedback. There's so many other things in the airplane that demand your attention that give you feedback. The stick shakes, the wings flutter, you know, you have horns and lights going off, you have radio calls coming in. All of these things are happening. And very quietly, way down on the bottom right, the needle's just falling, Right? And you put it in afterburner and everything works great and all the, the rest of the airplane gives you positive feedback except that thing now triples its speed on the way to zero. And it's because it's silent. It doesn't mean it's unimportant. It's very important. When I was, uh, one of the times I was in the desert, they had an airplane that, whose motors flamed out on the taxiway back. He had just enough gas to land. He pulled off the runway and his engines flamed out. He was Navy, by the way. For the record. Because it's the sort of thing that is, is silent. And the silence has killed many pilots. So you know what we did? We gave it a voice. That's what we did. In order to save our lives, we gave it a voice. It's a she, actually. It's Betty. It's her name. And she talks to you about your fuel and your altitude. She'll say to you, Bingo which means you've got to go home. Bingo. But it's a woman. Bingo. That's what she'll do. And you have to, until you, you kind of push the button to shut her up, and then it's on you. 
That's usually where the mistake happens. Oh, I got it. Beep. And then it's back to silence again. Or she'll sometimes say to you, altitude, altitude. And if you're not really paying attention, eventually you'll get a pull up, pull up. <laughs> Which that one, you have to obey. This morning, what we're going to try to do is give a voice to something that's very important, but is generally pretty silent. And it's always happening at some level in the lives of our families, but it can go ignored or neglected because it is such a quiet idea. And that is the idea of being together. Being together with your family. The idea of just being together. And last week we talked about, um, we used the illustration of like an iPhone or the cell phone as a way of building up a bigger principle. Uh, This morning what we're going to do is use the illustration of the dinner table, the concept of the dinner table, to talk about this idea of what it means to be together. What is being expressed when a family is together, particularly around the dinner table, but in general, what does it mean that we're, what is being expressed when we're together? So in Genesis 14... We're going to start, and I said it's abstract. We're going to start very, very, very wide out on this idea. And then we're going to hone in as, as the message goes on. So it's page 9. If you're borrowing one of the Bibles that's provided for you. And I want to read you an account. What has happened, Abram, who becomes Abraham... So I might use the words interchangeably. He's currently called Abram. Abram uh, lives up in the hill country. Well, his nephew Lot chose to settle down in the lush, fertile kind of valley where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were. And these are cities that are doomed for destruction. So they represent, on the contour of Scripture, um, a place of judgment. So that even when the Israelites get wicked, the Lord and the prophets begin to liken them as to Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot settles down there, and before long, we end up finding that Lot ultimately is occupying a home in the city of Sodom. But what happens is, in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah, there are uh, squabbles between different kingdoms. And there ends up becoming a war and alliances and things play out. And they end up playing out poorly for the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah who fall into captivity against another king. And Lot is one of the victims of that. He's just, he's a captive of that war. And somebody runs away, gets to Abram and says, this is what happened. And Abram with several men Uh, go up and they rescue. They actually defeat the king and rescue. And so he is the victor of a great rescue mission. And so this is what is said. I'm going to start in the 17th verse and read to the end of the chapter. After Abram returned from defeating Keralomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God, most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anner, Eshol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So there's a few characters in this, in this one story. They're the, probably the most notable character, apart from Abram, is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. So he's the king of a town, the king of peace. Salem is a root there. And he's a high priest of the God Most High. It's a mysterious moment in the Bible. Where does he come from? The Bible makes a lot of Melchizedek, though tells us almost nothing of Melchizedek. So all the data on Melchizedek you have seen. And when you get to Hebrews, there's a lot made of him. But apparently he is a king of the God Most High before the law, before the prophets, before Moses, before all of that. Somehow the Lord is working through his life and Abram recognizes it because when Melchizedek comes... Abraham recognizes that he brings the message of God with him and, in fact, tithes to Melchizedek. We always tithe, right? We tithe to the church to God. So Abraham's tithing to God through Melchizedek, saying, you, you were the reason we won, is what's happening. But what Melchizedek does is he brings a meal. He's bringing a meal to Abraham. It's, it's quite unique. And we, we have every reason to presume that they broke bread together. There'd be nothing that would lead us to think that they didn't. And then the other, the other character that is in this account is, is actually never gets a name. He's the king of Sodom. It's important. Melchizedek gets a name. The king of Sodom doesn't. And the king of Sodom comes to Abram with, a, with his own petition, so Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes to Abram and says, blesses him and then tells him who gave them the victory. And, and there's this exchange and this breaking of bread and this fellowship. And the king of Sodom otherwise comes and says, look, you give me the people back and I'll give you the spoils of war. To which Abram wants to have nothing to do with this relationship. He wants, doesn't want to establish a single kind of, he doesn't want to extend any hand of fellowship to the king of Sodom. He doesn't want there to be any reason for people to think that, that Abram is in any way associated with the king of Sodom. And in fact, the only thing he keeps, he says, is the food that his people have eaten. So what you end up having is the image of two different meals. You have a meal over here with Melchizedek and Abraham that is, is a meal that's around the fellowship of the Lord. It's God-directed, it's God-ordained, it's blessed, and there's, there is a clear connection between Melchizedek and Abram. And then over here you have this notion of there being no relationship at all, and, and the meal is, almost, is actually an issue of rationing, is almost the issue. That I'm not going to accept anything but the rations my men ate for the conquest. It's just an idea of feeding. here's relationship that's being developed, and over here is simply feeding. And I I, I chose this illustration because it's such a stark 
It's to build the biggest contrast and to allow your, you, you to put your family on this. Imagine it's a balance, right? And over here, obviously none of us have a Melchizedek experience at our dinner table. We have never had a Melchizedek experience. I'm not presuming that you do, that it's this wonderful God-ordained moment where your children choose to sing in a round their favorite hymn. And, and then they give you a tenth of everything they have. Right? We know that that's not happening. But, but it, just imagine it being a theoretical extreme of the fellowship before the Lord and a breaking of bread that unites people of God together. And then over here, you have the other extreme, which is we don't want to have any relationship at all with one another We simply feed. Where would you put your family? It's easy when you're young, right? Sits closer to this. The older they get, the easier, just logistically, the easier it is for the needle to begin to push towards feeding. Less conversation, less fellowship, certainly less spirituality, You have to be far more intentional as they get older to bring God into the conversation because oftentimes they are not. And I should say, if this is a sermon series on family, I have a right to talk to the adolescents in the room too. Do you realize, teenagers, how hurtful you can be when you drive drive the meal to a place of feeding only? When you, in your efforts to separate and become an individual, begin to make presumptions that all this is is a place to eat. And parents are not bulletproof. I just want you to see, in this stark illustration, the direction you're moving. There's nothing about coming of age that says you need to reject the friendship of your parents. Let's look at a second illustration. So this is a, I want to start at this wide idea with, with is the meal in your home a place where fellowship is, is brought in? Or is, is the meal time something that's pushing more towards the logistics of just making life happen? Okay? And correspondingly, the together time. My sense is the way the together time goes is the way the meal time goes. So I don't, I, I'm expecting there's probably a correlation as you think about it. There's, is the time that you're together building the family up or has the needle pushed so far over to the only reason you're together is to get somebody from one place, one place of individuality to the next place of individuality? Are you just feeding them? Okay, let's go. Go to Leviticus 11. We're working our way through it's page 76 and 77 if uh, you're using one of our Bibles. Now, we're not going to read this whole chapter. I do want you to see it. <clears throat> it's a chapter dedicated to food. It's in the law of Moses, the law of God. What is clean, what is unclean. And in our day and age, and certainly as we live on uh, this side of the work of Christ, and that we've been freed from, 
from the obligatory nature of the law, the purpose of the nature of the law is still visible and useful to the church. And so we see here uh, the whole 11th chapter is, is God navigating and prescribing for the people what they can and cannot eat. And many people have gone through, why would, why would this happen? And certainly there seems to be a health dimension to it. He's, God's not prescribing for them unhealthy food, and he's protecting them in some cases from unhealthy food. So that's, that's certainly at work here. But there's another purpose here. And it seems as though God is describing his family with dietary restrictions. What I'm saying is, is that the Lord is circumscribing, he's, he's putting his finger on the sand and drawing a circle around his people based upon what they're going to be eating. Because the outside world doesn't eat that way. He's creating for them a special diet, what you would call a kosher diet. He's creating for them a kosher diet, which will then go into dictating who they can eat with and who they can hang with. He's describing who they will be together with. He's, he's circumscribing the people of God. There is, there is an, an idea at the dinner table that there are those who are at the dinner table, and then there are those who are not. There is my family, and everyone else is not my family. And that's what the Lord is doing. The Lord is creating who, a decision on who is the family of God. And the meal is one place. He does it in a in a hundred places to the law of Moses. But it's an important, very silent way that God begins to describe who his family is. He begins to separate them from the world. There's this notion, you're not simply, it's, I know people say you are what you eat. You can also say you are who you eat with. You are who you eat with. If you step back and think of, of the people you spend your time with, the people that where most of your life is being lived with, you eventually begin to assimilate some of their mannerisms and customs and culture as you begin to share your mannerisms and culture, customs and culture. This is why I think, I, as a side note, I would say to the Christians, this is why there's the church. It's because we're to be in the world but not of the world. So you return to the church and the fellowship and the gathering to help strengthen your culture and then bring that into the world. Well, it's the same thing with the dinner table. The notion here in the Lord's mind is if they're eating and behaving a certain way, they will not fall in with other people. Look at 1143 through 45. <clears throat> this is the summation of the chapter. Do not defile yourself by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean by means of them or be un- made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. That's set apart. Because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about the ground. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. There's this notion of setting them apart. That a meal helps with. A meal is an act of unity. This is just just a fact. A meal is an act of unity. It's an, it's an act of acceptance. Just observe in your life how you use a meal. If you're going to take, young men, if you're going to take a girl out on a date, and you really like this girl, you're going to do what? You're going to take her to a 
meal. If you don't know, that's what you do. Take her to a good meal, okay, where you talk. You take her to a meal. If there's a friend that comes in town and you haven't seen him for a while, you meet up with him for a meal or you have them over for a meal. When a child graduates and you want to celebrate, you have a meal. When there's a wedding, you have a feast. When there's a funeral, you have a meal. When you're going to break up with the same girl you took out on a meal, you know what you do? You take her out on another meal. You don't text like, hey, it was great, let's be friends. You take her out on a meal. Why? Because even in the rejection, you want to have an environment of acceptance. A meal, breaking bread across the table, points people at one another, and it shares. It's a sharing. It is silent. It's not defending itself, but it's there. And it's all over our life. If you want to broker a big business deal, you take them to a meal. If you want to forge an alliance with another people, you have a meal. There's just, there is a mystical power of the table. In all these cases, the dinner table makes its silent appearance. And the Lord is keen to protect the people of this. Do you know what happens when, when, when they stop? When they stop remembering this, this is how the story of Judges starts. In Judges 2, it says, Then came a generation that neither knew the Lord nor remembered what he had done for his people, but had forgotten. Because generations had not handed down the story well. And you know, the bottom of the Judges, when you finally get to Samson, you know, there's this bottom image of him at a wedding feast with the Philistines. And that's where it all goes wrong. It's, this, it's just this image. In fact, in chapter 2, it says they forgot the Lord, they forgot his ways, they turned to idols, then they gave their daughters in marriage and took daughters of the people around them in marriage. It just flows that way. You are who you eat with. This will sound so obvious that it maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be said, but we grow to be like the people around us. Togetherness shapes us. And so as a family, the way we're together with our children shapes them. And when they're little, this is easy. They're a captive audience. The challenge is as they get older, they don't want to be with us. And part of that's natural, right? Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There is a natural, there's a natural growing to where they, they need to, in many ways, leave so that they can cleave to a different family. That, that's a natural part of getting older. But just because it's natural doesn't mean we ought not to be careful about it. I want you to ask as a family, where, where are you spending your times together? I mean, where, where the togetherness time, what's the togetherness time for your children? It's at school. I mean, all the time that they're breaking bread at the table, they're importing culture of their friends. Are you doing that at home? Are, you, are, you, are there ways at home that you're turning the family and pointing them into themselves, pointing them to one another? You, 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 can, you can spend time together. Again, it's abstract, so I'm going to say. You can spend time together in various different places, but even think... Even think in an abstract way about the way at a table you're positioned to face one another. That's not how it is on the bleachers. 
at a game. Yeah, you're spending time with the children, but everybody, everybody there is facing one direction. That says something. It, the architecture of the ball field is designed to speak towards performance. You can spend plenty of time in the car. We spend tons of time in the car, but everybody's facing the same direction. So there's these tier, right? There's the husband and wife, and sometimes we turn the music up to sequester our together time, right? But there's, there could be, in a minivan, three echelons of conversation. So it's together, but even the architecture there is, is affecting the definition of together. You could all watch TV together. I grew up watching TV as a family. Everybody's pointed at one thing. I'm just saying, see those abstract ideas as not totally irrelevant. What in your life points the family to itself? It's charades, a board game, a puzzle, and dinner. All right, one more, one more view. <clears throat> oh, I should say, some of you are saying, why would I want to have dinner? All we do is fight. <laughs> I, underst- I, under- I do understand that. So I don't understand your house, but I do understand the concept. The dinner, ta- the dinner table is always a challenge, but avoiding the dinner table it does not mean you're raising anybody. It means you're avoiding the problem and you're enabling. So let's put it out on front. You know, again, a quiet house says nothing. Why is it quiet? That's the first thing. And then some, in some ways, a dinner table is a great diagnostic for the life of the family. If you, if, at least it's a place where things come out and you understand what's happening in the lives of the children um, it's, it's just a great place to see who's where and what's happening, even if it's a challenge. So I just want to put it there. I'm not saying you need to have a great dinner. It doesn't need to be a dinner with Melchizedek, right? But your together time is going to tell you what's happening in the life of your family. Okay, turn with me, uh, last one, to Mark. Mark chapter 2, which is page 695. So we started way, way, way broad with the idea of a meal is a source of fellowship versus just like feeding. The idea of bringing relationship into it. And then we began to say, and a meal does something more. Togetherness does something more. Togetherness is simply more than fellowship. It begins to define a community, which is done well by the dinner table. Now I want you to look at how Christ defines the community, okay? As, as this is a symbol of how our Father in heaven defines his relationship with his children, so ought we be this way. Mark 2, verses 13. I'm going to start to read. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners were eating with him and his disciples. 
for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So there's this, Jesus turns, he's turning something on his head here. And we might be inclined to say that he's turning the meal on its head, but he's absolutely not turning the meal on his head. He's using the meal exactly the way it was always intended to be used. What he's turning on his head is the audience. He's redefining the kinship of God is what he's doing. But the meal is serving the exact purpose. That's exactly what the Pharisees note. The Pharisees look in and say, wait a second, wait a second. The rabbi is eating with people who are not in the family of God. What is going on? That's what they're saying. Whereas the Lord is saying, you mistake the boundary lines of the family of God. That what Jesus is doing is he's, he is himself circumscribing a new family, a new kind of family, a family who's, who is identified by their awareness of sin and their affection for God versus the Pharisees who have an affectation of righteousness, not an affection for God. And, and what, what, what Jesus is doing is saying, I, I'm bringing the meal of acceptance to the family. Christ is clear to show how God's family got their a family not because of their behavior, but because of what they of who they're being drawn towards. At your dinner table, this is the subtle, silent power I think of togetherness time. But just stick with the illustration: of the dinner table. Provided that you are not totally dysfunctional as a father or mother, okay? That you're within a standard deep of normal. Every time you sit at the table with your family, they are hearing in a most quiet way, you are accepted. You're loved. I choose to feed you. I want to be with you. I want to sit and face you. Every single meal. What other things in their life do they get so often growing up through all of their lives? And if, even if it's just one time a day, 365 days a year for 17, 18 years of their life, every single day they get an opportunity to sit down with a family and have this, this it's not even being said. Again, it's so quiet, it's not fighting for, it, for, for its own, own right in the sun. It's not a bright light or anything like that. It's not some program or some, something you have to pay for. It doesn't come with a jersey or anything like that. It's just quietly there where you're You're saying to your children, I love you. You are in this family. How do you do that at home? How do you circumscribe your family and say you're in? And you're in not because of your performance or your behavior or how you're doing. You're not in for those things. You're not in because of grades or or any of that other stuff. You're in because I've drawn you in. You're in because I say so. I want you here. I think that has value in the long term. Does God not call us to gather together? Do not cease from gathering together as some might do, says the Lord. Does the Lord not call us to come together 
before him? Did the Lord not even give us a dinner table? Did his own son not circumscribe us as his people at a table and say, because I love you, your family? That's the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is his way of saying, not because of anything you've done, not because of, of, of who you are or your lineage or your blood or your, or your 1042 or, or, or your, your whatever, whatever all, any of this says. It's none of any of that. It's because of what Christ has done for us that he has made us his family. Christ is the meal of the family of God. How in the life of your family do your children know that they are loved and accepted because you choose to love and accept them? May we see it modeled well by the way the Lord loves and accepts us. Amen.